0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, Concerning the American Language, by Mark Twain. And now, our story. Being part of a chapter which was crowded out of A Tramp Abroad, M.T. There was an Englishman in our compartment, and he complimented me on... On what? But you would never guess. He complimented me on my English... He said Americans in general did not speak the English language as correctly as I did. I said I was obliged to him for his compliment, since I knew he meant it for one, but that I was not fairly entitled to it, for I did not speak English at all. I only spoke American. He laughed and said it was a distinction without a difference. I said no, the difference was not prodigious, but still it was considerable. We fell into a friendly dispute over the matter. I put my case as well as I could and said, The languages were identical several generations ago, but our changed conditions and the spread of our people far to the south and far to the west have made many alterations in our pronunciation and have introduced new words among us and changed the meanings of many old ones. English people talk through their noses. We do not. We say, No. English people say, Now. We say, Cow. The Briton says, Cow! Oh, come. That's pure Yankee. Everybody knows that. Yes, it is pure Yankee. That is true. One cannot hear it in America outside of the little corner called New England, which is Yankee land. The English themselves planted it there, 250 years ago. And there it remains. It has never spread. But England talks through her nose yet. The Londoner and the backwoods New Englander pronounce No and Cow alike and then the Briton unconsciously satirizes himself by making fun of the Yankees' pronunciation. We argued this point at some length. Nobody won, but no matter. The fact remains, Englishmen say now and cow for no and cow, and that is what the rustic inhabitant of a very small section of America does. You conferred your A upon New England, too, and there it remains. It has not traveled out of the narrow limits of those six little states in all these two hundred and fifty years. All England uses it. New England's small population, say four millions, use it, but we have 45 millions who do not use it. You say, glass of water. So does New England. At least, New England says, glass. America at large flattens the A and says, glass of water. These sounds are pleasanter than yours. You may think they are not right. Well, in English they are not right, but American they are. You say, flosk and basket, and jackass. We say flask, basket, jackass, sounding the A as it is in tallow, fallow, and so on. Up to as late as 1847, Mr. Webster's Dictionary had the impudence to still pronounce basket, bosket, when he knew that outside of his little New England all America shortened the A and paid no attention to his English broadening of it. However, it called itself an English Dictionary, so it was proper enough that it should stick to English forms, perhaps. It still calls itself an English dictionary today, but it has quietly ceased to pronounce basket as if it were spelt bosket. In the American language, the H is respected. The H is not dropped or added improperly. The same is the case in England. I mean among the educated classes, of course. Yes, that is true. But a nation's language is a very large matter. It is not simply a manner of speech obtaining among the educated handful. The manner obtaining among the vast uneducated multitude must be considered also. Your uneducated masses speak English. You will not deny that. Our uneducated masses speak American. It won't be fair for you to deny that, for you can see, yourself, that when your stable boy says, It isn't the hunting that hurts the horseshoe, but the ammer, ammer, ammer on the Arda Iway. Stable, And our stable boy makes the same remark. It isn't the hunting that hurts the horse. But the hammer, hammer, hammer on the hard highway, without suffocating a single H. These two people are manifestly talking two different languages. But if the signs are to be trusted, even your educated classes used to drop the H. They say humble now, and heroic, and historic, etc. But I judge that they used to drop those H's because your writers still keep up the fashion of putting an before those words instead of an A. A horse, an horse. This is what Mr. Darwin might call a rudimentary sign that, as "an" was justifiable once, and useful when your educated classes used to say humble, and heroic, and historical. Correct writers of the American language do not put "an" before three words. The English gentleman had something to say upon this matter, but never mind what he said. I'm not arguing his case. I have him at a disadvantage. Now I proceeded. In England you encourage an orator by exclaiming, "'Hear, hear!' We pronounce it here in some sections, here, here, and others, and so on, but our whites do not say here, pronouncing the a's like the a in ah. I have heard English ladies say, don't you, making two separate and distinct words of it. Your Mr. Bernand has satirized it, but we always say, don't you. This is much better. Your ladies say, oh, it's awful nice. Ours say, oh, it's awful nice. We say 400, you say four, as in the word or. Your clergymen speak of the laud, ours of the Lord. Yours speak of the gods of heathen, ours of the gods of the heathen. When you are exhausted, you say you are knocked up. We don't. When you say you will do a thing directly, you mean immediately, in the American language. Generally speaking, the word signifies after a little. When you say clever, you mean capable. With us, the word used to mean accommodating, but I don't know what it means now. Your word stout means fleshy. Our word stout usually means strong. Your words gentleman and lady have a very restricted meaning. With us, they include the barmaid, butcher, burglar, harlot, and horse thief. You you say, I haven't got any stockings on. I haven't got any memory. I haven't got any money in my purse. We usually say, I haven't any stockings on. I haven't any memory. I haven't any money in my purse. You say, out of window. We always put in a the, out of the window. If one asks, how old is that man? The Briton answers, he will be about forty. In the American language, we should say, he is about forty. However, I won't tire you, sir, but if I wanted to, I could pile up differences here until I not only convinced you that English and American are separate languages, but when I speak my native tongue in its utmost purity an Englishman can't understand me at all. And so he said to me, I don't wish to flatter you, but it is about all I can do to understand you now. That was a very pretty compliment, and it put us on the pleasantest terms directly. I use the word in the English sense. A post-note, 1882. Esthets in many of our schools are now beginning to teach the pupils to broaden the A and to say, don't you, in the elegant foreign way. We'll return to our second Mark Twain story right after this brief message. And now our second story, A Helpless Situation, by Mark Twain. Once or twice a year I get a letter of a certain pattern, a pattern that never materially changes in form and substance. Yet I cannot get used to that letter. It always astonishes me. It affects me as the locomotive always affects me. I said to myself, "'I have seen you a thousand times. "'You always look the same way. "'Yet you are always a wonder, "'and you are always impossible. "'To contrive you is clearly beyond human genius. "'You can't exist. "'You don't exist. "'Yet here you are. "'I have a letter of that kind by me, "'a very old one. "'I yearn to print it, "'and where is the harm? "'The writer of it is dead years ago, no doubt, "'and if I conceal her name and address, "'her this world address,' I am sure her shade will not mine, and with it I wish to print the answer which I wrote at the time, but probably did not send. If it went, which is not likely, it went in the form of a copy, for I find the original still here, pigeonholed with the said letter. To that kind of letters we all write answers which we do not send, fearing to hurt where we have no desire to hurt. I have done it many a time, and this is doubtless a case of that sort. THE LETTER Blank, California, June third, eighteen 1879. Mr. S. L. Clemens, Hartford, Connecticut. Dear Sir, you will doubtless be surprised to know who has presumed to write and ask a favor of you. Let your memory go back to your days in the Humboldt Mines, 62 and 63. You will remember, you and Claggett and Oliver and the old blacksmith Toulouse lived in a lean-to which was halfway up the gulch, "'and there were six log cabins in the camp, "'strung pretty well separated up the gulch "'from its mouth at the desert "'to where the last claim was, at the Divide. "'The lean-to you lived in "'was the one with the canvas roof "'that the cow fell down through one night, "'as told about you in roughing it. "'My Uncle Simmons remembers that very well. "'He lived in the principal cabin, "'halfway up the Divide, "'along with Dixon and Parker and Smith. "'It had two rooms, "'one for kitchen and the other for bunks, "'and was the only one that had.' "'You and your party were there on that great night, "'the time they had dried apple pie. "'Uncle Simmons often speaks of it. "'It seems curious that dried apple pie "'should have seemed such a great thing. "'But it was. "'And it shows how far Humboldt was out of the world, "'difficult to get to, "'and how slim the regular bill of fare was. Sixteen years ago. "'It's a long time. "'I was a little girl then, only fourteen. "'I never saw you. "'I lived in Washoe.' "'But Uncle Simmons ran across you every now and then, "'all during those weeks that you and Party were there working your claim, "'which was like the rest. "'The camp played out long and long ago. "'There wasn't silver enough in it to make a button. "'You never saw my husband, but he was there after you left, "'and lived in that very lean-to, a bachelor then, but married to me now. "'He often wishes there had been a photographer there in those days. "'He would have taken the lean-to.' "'He got hurt in the old Hal Clayton claim "'that was abandoned like the others, "'putting in a blast and not climbing out quick enough. "'Though he scrambled the best he could. "'It landed him clear down on the train and hit a Paiute. "'For weeks they thought he would not get over it, but he did, "'and he's all right now, has been ever since. "'This is a long introduction, "'but it is the only way I can make myself known. "'The favor I ask I feel assured your generous heart will grant. "'Give me some advice about a book I have written.' I do not claim anything for it, only it is mostly true and as interesting as most of the books of the Times. I am unknown in the literary world, and you know what that means unless one has some of the influence, like yourself, to help you by speaking a good word for you. I would like to place the book on a royalty basis plan with anyone you would suggest. This is a secret for my husband and family. I intend it as a surprise in case I get it published. Feeling you will take an interest in this, and if possible, write me a letter to some publisher, or better still, if you can see them for me, and then let me hear. I appeal to you to grant me this favor with deepest gratitude. I thank you for your attention and That was the end of the letter. One knows without inquiring that the twin of that embarrassing letter is forever and ever flying in this and that and the other direction across the continent in the mails daily, nightly, hourly, unceasingly, unrestingly. it goes to every well-known merchant and railway official, and manufacturer, and capitalist, and mayor, and congressman, and governor, and editor, and publisher, and author, and broker, and banker, in a word, to every person who is supposed to have influence. It always follows the one pattern. You don't know me, but you once knew a relative of mine, etc., etc. We should all like to help the applicants. We should all be glad to do it. "'We should all like to return the sort of answer that is desired. "'But, well, there's not a thing we can do that would be a help. "'For not in any instance does that letter ever come from anyone who can be helped. "'The struggler whom you could help does his own helping. "'It wouldn't occur to him to apply to you, stranger. "'He has talent and knows it, "'and he goes into his fight eagerly and with energy and determination, "'all alone, preferring to be alone.' THAT PATHETIC LETTER WHICH COMES TO YOU FROM THE INCAPABLE, THE UNHELPABLE. HOW DO YOU, WHO ARE FAMILIAR WITH IT, ANSWER IT? WHAT DO YOU FIND TO SAY? YOU DO NOT WANT TO INFLICT A WOUND. YOU HUNT WAYS TO AVOID THAT. WHAT DO YOU FIND? HOW DO YOU GET OUT OF YOUR HARD PLACE WITH A CONTEND CONSCIENCE? DO YOU TRY TO EXPLAIN? THIS OLD REPLY OF MINE TO SUCH A LETTER SHOWS THAT I TRIED THAT ONCE. WAS I SATISFIED WITH THE RESULT? POSSIBLY, AND POSSIBLY NOT. Probably not. Hmm, almost certainly not. I have long ago forgotten all about it. But anyway, I append my effort. The reply. I know Mr. H., and I will go to him, dear madam, if upon reflection you find you still desire it. There will be a conversation. I know the form it will take. It will go like this. Mr. H., how do her books strike you? Mr. Clemens. I'm not acquainted with them. Who has been her publisher? I don't know. She has one, I suppose? Uh, i I think not. Ah, you think this is her first book? Yes, I suppose so. I think so. What is it about? What is the character of it? I believe I do not know. Have you seen it? Well, no, I haven't. Ah, huh How long have you known her? "'I don't know her.' "'You don't know her?' "'No.' "'Ah, and how did you come to be interested in her book, then?' "'Well, she... she wrote and asked me to find a publisher for her. "'And mentioned you. "'Why should she apply to you instead of me?' "'She wished me to use my influence.' "'Dear me, what has influence to do with such a matter?' "'Well, I think she thought you would be more likely to examine her book "'if you were influenced.' Why, why, what we are here for is to examine books, anybody's book that comes along, that's our business. Why should we turn away a book unexamined because it's a stranger's? It would be foolish, no publisher does it on what ground did she request your influence since you do not know her? She must have thought you knew her literature and could speak for it. Is that it? No, she knew I didn't well, what then? She had a reason of some sort for believing you competent to recommend her literature, and also under obligations to do it. "'Yes. I... I knew her uncle.' "'You knew her uncle?' "'Yes.' "'Upon my word. So you knew her uncle. Her uncle knows her literature. He endorses it to you. The chain is complete. Nothing further needed. You are satisfied, and therefore... No, no, that isn't it at all. There are other ties.' I know the cabin her uncle lived in, in the mines. I knew his partners, too. Also, I came near knowing her husband before she married him. And I did know the abandoned shaft where a premature blast went off, and he went flying through the air and clear down to the trail and hit an Indian in the back with almost fatal consequences. Uh, To him or to the Indian? She didn't say which one it was. (sighs) It certainly beats the band. You don't know her, "'You don't know her literature. "'You don't know who got hurt when the blast went off. "'You don't know a single thing for us to build an estimate of her book upon. "'So far as I—' "'Ah, I did know her uncle. "'You're forgetting her uncle.' "'Oh, what use is he? "'Did you know him long? "'How long was it?' "'Well, I don't know that I really knew him, "'but I must have met him, anyway. "'I think it was that way. "'You can't tell about these things, you know, "'except when they're recent.' recent when was all this 16 years ago what a basis to judge a book upon at first you said you knew him and not you don't know whether you did or not oh yes i know him anyway i think i thought i did i'm perfectly certain of it what makes you think you thought what makes you think you thought you knew him why she says i did herself she says so yes she does and i know him too although I don't remember it now. Come. How can you know it when you don't remember it? I don't know. That is, I don't know the process, but I do know lots of things that I don't remember, and remember lots of things I don't know. It's so with every educated person. Is your time valuable? No. Well, not very. Mine is. So I came away then, because he was looking tired. Overwork, I reckon. I never do that. I have seen the evil effects of it. My mother was always afraid I would overwork myself. But I never did. Dear Madam, do you see how it would happen if I went there? He would ask me those questions, and I would try to answer them to suit him. And he would hunt me here and there and yonder, and get me embarrassed more and more all the time. And at last he would look tired on account of overwork. And there it would end, with nothing done. I wish I could be useful to you. But, you see... They do not care for uncles or any of those things. It doesn't move them. It doesn't have the least effect. They don't care for anything but the literature itself. And they as good as despise influence. But they do care for books, and are eager to get them and examine them, no matter whence they come, nor from whose pen. If you will send yours to a publisher, any publisher, he will certainly examine it. I can assure you of that. Thanks for joining us for these two Mark Twain stories. Hope you enjoyed them. We do appreciate reviews at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and here are a few recent ones. The first one, five stars. Great stories and voice. I'm heading to Patreon now. Fantastic voice, John. Great stories. I'm loving the Conrad and Jack London ones especially. Thanks for reading my earlier review where I complained about the ads. Sorry to be negative about what is an excellent and much appreciated podcast. I am now going to sign up at Patreon, as per your suggestion. No more freeloading and whining. Keep them coming. You're doing a magnificent job. Tom, New Zealand. Thank you, Tom, and thank you for your support at Patreon. And this one, five stars, among the very, very best podcasts. Each of the 1001 podcasts is a top-notch production, family-friendly, well-researched, and professionally produced. These casts are always informative and entertaining. Get them all now and stop wondering where the great entertainment is. Down from Toon Talker, Apple Podcast US. And this one, five stars. Great stuff. Love this podcast. Great stories told well, especially like the comments at the end. And the countdown of the most popular stories. That was very interesting. Makes the whole thing seem so personal. Up there with myths and amp. Legends my favorite. Amanda Zetas, Apple Podcast, Australia. And this one, five stars, love it. Great choice of stories. Narrator's voice is easy to listen to, clear and expressive. Ads midway are voiced by the narrator, so they aren't too intrusive. That one from Trying to Speak Persian, Apple Podcast, Australia. And this one, all, five stars. Listen almost every night and really love the stories, especially the mystery ones. Please keep them coming. That one from Travis Cat, Canada. Thank you all very much for taking the time to send us reviews. It helps other people find our shows. We appreciate them very much. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new story at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Everyone stay safe, and we'll see you then.